Hi, and welcome to Over the Rainbow, the podcast all about colour. My name is Helen Disley, and I'll be chatting today with Hugh Owens and Steve Westland. If you missed our first episode, Can Dogs See Colour? Please check that out. You can find it on Apple Podcasts or on Podbean. This is episode two. When did humans first see colour? When we first started recording these, did you ever imagine we would still be here after so many? <laughs> well, good point. To be honest, I never even thought we'd finish the first one. <laughs> because, as listeners might guess, we're not actually in the same room as each other. We're actually in separate rooms. And we're all recording our, our voices separately on separate tracks. And we had so many technical difficulties doing that. At one point, I never thought we'd get to the end of the first one. Never mind get to do episode two, so um, so far so good. Anyway, this, this, the title of this episode is, um, is When Did Humans First See Colour? So um, I guess part of that answer to that is to say, well, how long have humans been around? And it, and it turns out, I think, not that long. You know, in, in in geological terms, I mean, Homo sapiens appeared about a quarter of a million years ago. And, and that's what we would perhaps recognise as being an anatomically modern human. Um, but they were part of a class called hominids, which includes things like Homo erectus. And, and they've been around for about two and a half million years, which is a long time. But none of the three of us are experts in evolution of, of colour vision, and there are people who are experts on that. But nevertheless, it's, it's, it's obvious from a, a cursory glance at the literature that our trichromacy, our three cones, have been around for a really long time. Probably at least 30 million years. So you could argue, therefore, that ever since we've been human... Um, we've had trichromatic colour vision. But our ancestors certainly didn't have. You know, and, um, our very early ancestors were probably nocturnal, probably had just UV, near-visible vision. We're talking about small mammals here. Small yeah, mammals, that's small right. Mammals, yeah. um, and, and then, you know, a, about 80 million years ago, our ancestors started to have uh, sensitivity in the longer wavelengths and, and became dichromats and then became trichromats. But that evolution, as far as I can see, happened over about 50 million years. So really, really slow. Um, so basically, we can end the podcast now and simply say, how long have humans had colour vision? Always. Since we've been human. That's one way of looking at it. There is another slightly more interesting divergence that we see, though, don't we, when we start to look at uh, the evolution of, of colour vision. As you say, humans in their current form have been around for a very short time. But when we look at the geneticists and how they track back the derivation of the 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 photoreceptors and the photopigments in particular. We're talking 90 million years ago 
And as you start to look through the mammals, there seems to be a real distinction mm. between old world and new world um, monkeys and primates. So it's quite interesting that one of those groups, the old world primates, seem to have very similar visual systems to ours. They seem to have this trichromacy. But the old, uh, sorry, the new world primates and monkeys, they seem to be mostly dichromats. So it's interesting to see, well, what advantage was there for these, for three sensors rather than two? Yeah, and you made the point, Hugh, last week, I think it was, that, that you know, we, 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 most mammals actually are dichromats, and then some, are, very few are trichromats, and then insects tend to be trichromats, and um, some animals, obviously, last week we spoke about, have got more than three dimensions to their, to their colour vision receptors. Um, but as you said last week, the reasons for this are almost certainly to do with evolutionary advantage. But it's not obvious to me, at least. Um, I'm not a, a, an expert on um, uh, this, the distinction between new and old world monkeys. But so it's not obvious, obvious to me what what real advantage it was to be trichromatic. Though I, though I, I am aware of, of work um, by people like John Mullen that, that have looked at the sort of the development of, of trichromacy from dichromacy as giving us um, an advantage to distinguish in the red-green region, for example, perhaps to distinguish uh, fruit from foliage in the jungle, for example. I think there are some really interesting pop science-type books out there as well. I, I know there were some books by uh, Andrew Parker, and he was looking at the evolution of, of the eye and of vision, and he a couple of books, uh, things like In the Blink of an Eye and Seven Deadly Colours, and that that's quite nice in the way that he deals with some of those evolutionary aspects, um, but probably beyond the scope of our podcast. And just when with these old world and new world monkeys and primates, do you think they some they these have never developed trichromacy, or do you think they've lost it? If our early, early, very early ancestors had trichromacy, trichromacy. My, my guess is they never had it, but I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not an expert there. Mm. Um, I think if, if we accept that pretty much we've all got the same um, cone machinery. By the way, I'm going to now immediately contradict, my, contradict myself. Because, of course, we all already mentioned last week colour-deficient observers, some of, only, some of whom only have got two classes of cone. And a very small number of people have only got one, of course. And then something we haven't mentioned so far is tetrachromacy, which I think we'll talk about when we do the colour-blindness or colour-deficiency um, podcast. But this is the idea that some people, uh, females, have actually got four cones, not three, and therefore potentially have got um, better colour discrimination than the rest of us mere mortals. So I, I was tempted to sort of say that our visual systems haven't changed in 
in 30 million years. But I'm, I'm not sure that's the case, actually, because I don't know how long this tetrachromacy has been around. A, a long time. But I'm not, I'm not sure it's been around 30 million years. Are you, are you Hugh? That, it's a really interesting question because I think it, it it shows that we don't fully understand all of the anatomy yet. We're still learning. Well, we don't, obviously. Well, we, well no, certainly we don't. <laughs> I mean, um, you know, for, for, we still tell students in the classroom there are these light sensing cells in the eye and I know when we first started we'd just be talking about these two um, main categories called rods which seem to mediate our twilight and low light vision um, perception of the world and then our cones which deal with the the daylight and colour of the world but I think relatively recently when we talk about cells that are responding to the to light in the eye, we've we've also added things like photosensitive retinal ganglion cells, which don't don't necessarily mediate anything to do with our vision, but they do seem to have a relationship with the circadian patterns that we all seem to go through. And indeed, that that is going to be the topic for next oh. week. So that's a good, uh-huh. good segue. <laughs> that's a good segue. So. Um, if, if we ignore for a second um, the, the fact that some people are dichromats and we ignore the fact that some people are tetrachromats and we just think about the majority of us who've got three sets of three types of cones, do we all see colour the same? So um, one of the things that um, I, I think is interesting is we can sort of say that light is that radiation approximately between 400 nanometers and 700 nanometers approximately because I can already see Hugh's face actually because even though we're not in the same room we do have have video um, and we can spend half an hour talking about what that range is actually it's it's really quite interesting but let's say approximately 400 to 700 actually I'd like to say 360 to 780 but yeah but let's say 400 to 700 um and that goes from blue at one end to red at the other end. Now, one of the things that I think is really important is the following, which is I would say that light isn't actually coloured. It just looks coloured. And it's a massive distinction. It might seem a small distinction, but it's a massive distinction. And I've got a little question I want to ask the both of you. It's a question that I've been asked um, on social media by, by listeners <coughs> in the past. And it is, um, imagine if instead of being sensitive to 400 to 700, we were sensitive to 700 to 1,000. What colours would we see? And I'm going to go to Helen first, put her under pressure. What colours would we see in the region 400 to 700? And by the way, there is no... um, right or wrong answer. This is what is called a Gedanken experiment, um, like the experiment about Schrodinger's cat. It's a, it's a thought experiment. Um, nobody knows what would happen, but what do you think could happen? Um, what colours do you think we'd see in the region 700 to 1,000 nanometers? I'm not sure we would even see colours. 
I mean, obviously it's the red, the red end of the spectrum, isn't it? But um, you think about infrared; it may just be, uh, it may just be we see a difference between the wavelengths in a, in a sort of a black and white kind of gradient, rather than seeing different colours. Nice answer. Um, I don't agree with this, by the way, but it's nice. It's a nice answer. It's a nice. <laughs> <laughs> nice answer. You may well be right. What do you think, Hugh? I think that's that. That's a really interesting answer. But um, just as usual, I'll probably completely deflect your original question and say that I think that our visual systems are tuned to our environment. So the most interesting variations we see in the natural world are based on variations occurring in natural pigments and other colorants that we interact with all the time so there's a reason that we we're tuned to that particular wavelength range so of course I, i've dodged the question no, completely you, that is a great answer hugh and i and i totally agree with it right however of course as is your way it is <laughs> is not the question the answer to the question which i asked but it's a very good um answer because a politician. Yeah, another thing people well, of course he is a politician of course we haven't revealed our identities yet but that will become clear in, in later episodes but um sometimes people say why are we sensitive to this range right and that's the question that hugh's answering and y your answer helen if, if i can say would be consistent with the view we are sensitive to that range because that range is coloured Right, and outside of that range, we don't have colour. Right, and that's the physicalist yeah. view of the world, which is which is fine. Lots of people, even colour scientists, um, take that view. Um, but but Hugh's answer is saying that that is where it is evolutionary advantageous to see. Right, it's, there's a good reason why we see in 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 that in that range. And Hugh could have added. I'm sure he, he knows this. He could have added that. One of the problems with shorter wavelengths, in fact, I think he mentioned it last week, is, is the danger of, of those very short wavelengths. It becomes just too hazardous to be sensitive to those. So there's, there's, there's a good reason why we would be sensitive to that, to that range. But this is my argument, and it, it is controversial. But my, my argument is, if we were sensitive instead to 700 nanometers to 1,000 nanometers... What would, would we see? Blue, red, yellow, green. We'd see exactly the same hues, just shifted up the spectrum. Because, as Newton said, Isaac Newton, the rays are not coloured. Light at 700 nanometers is not actually red. Newton said it. In fact, he wasn't the first to say that sort of thing. One of my favourite quotes is by Democritus, who was... 400 BC. He was one of your schoolmates, wasn't he, Steve? Indeed he was. Indeed. Yeah. My junior schoolmates, actually. Actually, I should also add that it's probably politically incorrect, incorrect to say 400 BC. Have you heard of that, Helen? No, I haven't. Because it's before Christ. So it's, yeah. it's got a, a, a bias, let's say. What, I, what people should say is before the Common Era. And then... Okay. AD is referred to as the common era, but lots of older people like me have not, as Hugh said, I'm very, very old, um, have not changed with the times. Anyway, to get back to the point, Democritus, 
who's one of the first people who actually we can record what he thought about colour. He said this, by convention we have sweet and by convention we have bitter. By convention we have hot, cold and by convention we have colour. But in reality all we have are atoms and the void. And I'm paraphrasing him. But he's basically saying that colour and our other senses are perceptions. And that, I'm going to digress a bit further here, but I, I was once asked in court in New York on the stand about whether I believed if a tree falls in the forest and no one's around, does it make a sound? Because it's the same argument. And I'm very clear about it. Of course it doesn't. Because the tree falls, what does it do? It causes a vibration in the air, of air molecules. It is only converted into sound when you have an auditory system to pick it up and convert it into brain responses, etc. So the, sound, the, the physical stimulus of, of sound is movement of air. We hear sound. The physical stimulus of colour is light, but what we perceive is, is colour. Right? So if you removed all living creatures from the world, there'd be no pain, no colour, no smells, no taste. All of those things would go because they're all perceptions. So my argument is that we would basically see, um, we would map, if we evolved instead to have 700 to 1,000 nanometers, we would see Richard of York gave battle in vain, starting at 1,000. We'd categorise Maybe the other way around, who who knows. Um, and, And I think that's really interesting, because if you accept that, it means you do accept the notion that, as Newton said, that the rays are not coloured. So it really brings into focus that question, whether you think colour really is a perception or whether light really is um, coloured. And the reason I think this is sort of um, interesting to have that sort of debate is that if you think, if one thinks that colour is a physical property, then we've all got three cones, we can all detect it, Uh, we all see it pretty much the same. But once you understand that colour is a perception, it's not obvious that we all see it the same. And we, we mentioned this last week briefly when we talked about the fact that we might both call what we experience red, but what we experience could be really, really different. And it turns out that there's a whole argument over about 150 years between um, universalists, I guess, who, who think we all see colour the same, and, and relativists who, who think that, um, for example, different cultures might see colour differently, despite having the same um, cone um, machinery. Can I ask you a quick question? It's a question that I often ask my students. Um, when we start talking about specification of colour using the standard international system 
that we do. We start talking about signals and light sources and then observers. Um, and, and students can get that quite quickly, I think, the, this signal and this categorization of the signal. But it, I find it fascinating that I can talk to groups of designers and I can talk to groups of scientists and I'll give them this question and, and some will say, yes, I can, I can do that and others won't. So I say, can you just close your eyes for a second and think of the purple elephant? And it's interesting, the designers seem generally on hold to say, yep, can do that, that that's really easy. But there's a real split in the way that the scientists seem to do that, that perception. I wonder, I wonder if, if that's a, a, a real or imagined thing. Yeah, well, it, could, it, could be, um, it could be a creativity thing, I suppose. You know, designers tend to be fairly creative and maybe they're more open, maybe, you know, into, into, how, they, into how they see things. Um, so one of the... Um, one of the interesting experiments in this area was done in the 1960s by Berlin and Kay. And I know, I know that Hugh knows a lot about this topic. Um, I've, I've looked into it as well. They studied languages, different languages, but they didn't study languages like English and French. It was languages um, that were spoken by relatively small groups of people. For example, one of them was Pomo, which is a language spoken by indigenous people in California. And this language only has th three main terms, three main terms for colour, what we might call basic colour terms. They have a white term, a black term and a red term. So they don't have a word for blue. They don't have a word for yellow. It just doesn't exist. And when they looked at these languages, they found that some of them only had black and white, where it's not just black and white, by the way. Black might mean dark and, and warm colours, for example, and, and white or light might mean light and cool colours. So any colour can be put into this, these two terms. But some had two terms, some had three, some had four, some had five. What they found is all of these different languages... If a term had only two, if a language had only two terms, it was always black and white, or light and dark. If a language like Pomo had three terms, it was always red as the third term. And then the, the fourth term added was either green or yellow, or, or yellow and then followed by green, followed by blue, brown, and then purple, pink, orange and grey coming in, in various orders. And they argued because um, of this um, similarity that it was evidence of the universalist um, concept that we all see colour the same. But it has been, that work has been critiqued, I suppose is a good word for it, um, e even by the authors themselves, to be fair, over the last um, 30, 40 years. And, for example, um, there was a few problems with it. For example, all the, all the speakers of all the languages also spoke English, which is maybe a, a bias there. And, and there were some other problems as well to do with, 
fairly small number of participants in some cases. But, but a really interesting experiment was done more recently by, by Jules Davidov at uh, Goldsmiths University. And what he did, he studied the Himba tribe in, the, in Namibia. Now it turns out that the Himba tribe don't have a word for blue. So what he did, he put, I think, 12 patches on a screen, computer screen, and 11 of them were green and one was blue. And he said, pick the odd one out. And if I showed that screen to Helen, she'd just pick it out straight away, the blue one. It just stands out. Then he said to the Himba tribe, pick the odd one out. And there's a nice video he recorded them doing it. And they're just staring at the screen. They all look exactly the same. And they, they either can't pick it out or they take almost forever to do it. The implication being, because they don't have a word for blue, they don't, it's not that they don't see blue, but they don't distinguish it from, from the, the greens, for example. And he did a similar experiment where he, he then, although they can't tell um, blue from green, they're very good at telling greens apart. So he then um, showed a different screen with 12 greens, 11 of which were rather similar, and one which was really quite different to the Himba tribe, and they picked it out straight away. And he showed it to people from the West, for example, and they, they all looked identical. I've, I mean, I've seen a representation on the screen of it. They, all the greens look the same to me. So there's actually quite a lot of evidence now that, that culture and, and language might, um, might, might actually affect how we, how we perceive um, colour. And um, yeah, I, I think. Uh, yeah, I think I think that's really interesting. It's it. They used the colour and colour memory, didn't they, as a, a subset of this wider hypothesis, this Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, didn't they? That's right. Or I think they call it linguistic relativity or something. Um, and that's this idea that language, that the language one speaks, influences the way one thinks about reality as well. So it, it, it's interesting to see that they were trying to make this link between the sophistication of whatever civilization they were, they were interacting with, with the number of terms they had to describe how they interacted with their environment, in particular color. Some really interesting, as you say, uh, the experiments. Reason I, my, so. The reason my voice tailed off in my, my answer to you is because I'm trying to remember the name of the Sapir Wharf hypothesis. And oh. you, <laughs> it, it slipped my mind under the pressure of recording um, this podcast live. <laughs> uh, I know. But as you say, it's about, it's about linguistic relativity to do with perception generally. So that you know, our perception is maybe um, influenced by, by the language that we use. And I, I think there's quite a lot of support for that. But I think this debate about um, relativists against universalists is still, is still raging to some extent. I don't think it's entirely, entirely solved. Uh, I, I did see another interesting study recently, um, MIT of all places, uh, looking at Russians. It turns out Russians don't have 
a single basic colour name for blue like we do. They have a word for dark blue and a word for light blue. So I'm, not, I'm not saying they say dark blue and light blue. They have a single word which means dark blue and a single word that means light blue. And it turns out they did some psychophysical tests. They can discriminate between light and blue shades, light and dark shades of blue, faster than English speakers can. Again, evidence that their perception is, is influenced by their, by their language. Um, and if we had more time, which I don't think we do, we could talk about the, the inverted spectrum which, I don't know if you've heard that argument, but the inverted spectrum is to say, how do we know, for example, that when I look at the spectrum and we see blue at one end and red at the other end, but we, we both call it blue at one end and we both call the other end red, but what if what I experience at one end is what you experience at the other end? In other words, in other words it's flipped. What I experience at the blue end is what you experience at the red end and vice versa. And... Well, we haven't got time. We could talk about that. <laughs> we haven't got time. So, um, what about that? Can I just, in terms of talking about us not seeing colours the same, do you remember that dress that was on the internet with the blue and gold and the black and I don't know what kind of what colours it was that, that we were looking at the same thing, but we're seeing very, very apparently seeing very, very different colours. Does that fit in with that? Do we all see colours the same? Was that slightly different? Yeah, it's, no, it's, it's, we, we could do a whole podcast on that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's, that's so interesting. And uh, I think what it certainly does fit in with is... So, because, because people tend to think that things are coloured, for example, that, that colour is a physical property, when something like the dress happens, it's a massive shock to them. It's like, what's going on? Whereas because we deal with these sorts of things on an almost daily basis... It wasn't entirely surprising to me, though that image is still rather remarkable. You know, it's a really remarkable image. Um, so I think yeah. one of the things that that um, thing, the dress, speaks to is the idea that colour is a perception. And we don't always so I, see the same thing when we're looking at the same thing. I, I wrote that dress off originally as to do with our screens and we're all looking at different screens and the screens have different colour setups. And it was, it was remarkable when we were actually all looking at the same image on the same screen and people are saying, Well, I'll tell you a funny story, Helen. It's clearly blue and gold. <laughs> I did exactly the same thing, right? So I was, I was phoned up by the BBC to go on the radio live about it when, it when the story broke. I said, I've got a lecture now, but call me back at five past ten. So they called me back at five past ten, and just before they called, I had a quick look online, and yeah, okay, I can see what's going on here. It's to do with screens, and it's to do with colour management. And then when I went on, on live, before I spoke to the live um, producer, the live uh, presenter, um, his, his research assistant said to me that she and the, the presenter were looking at the same screen at the same time. And actually were seeing very, very different colours. One was seeing blue and black and one white and gold, I think it is. Yeah, sorry. And I thought, oops, um, in one minute time I'm going on live radio. <laughs> and my, the, the explanation I thought I was going to give, I realised I, I couldn't give. Um, so yeah, I, I thought that as well, Helen, but it, it wasn't anything to do with that really. Yeah. And it also, by the way, wasn't anything to do with the dress. 
if, you, if anyone has seen the dress in real life, they would have had no problem seeing its real colour. The problem, it should have been hashtag the image. It's the way the image was taken that made it so interesting. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's a very relevant thing to bring up, Helen. So w one of the things um, we talked about before we started this second episode was um, not, not a quite a disclaimer, but um, just to say that we um, have a professional um, interest, let's say, in, in colour. We work in colour. Um, and um, But of course, we're here just giving you our um, personal opinions um, it's it's really just for fun and entertainment, um, but hopefully it's also a little bit um, in, informative. Now, we, one of the things we edutainment. Edu it's a good. That's a good word. Helen. Ed <laughs> edutainment. Um, one of the things that we'd like to encourage you to do is to send us questions that you'd like us to talk about. Um, we had a bit of a discussion beforehand about how you can send it. Perhaps the best way is simply to email me. I'm going to give my email address, which is, um, which might be a mistake, um, <laughs> but it's s.westland, W-E-S-T-L-A-N-D, at leeds, L-E-E-D-S, dot A-C, dot U-K. So there's a bit of a giveaway there, but where I might be working, uh, well, at least I have been until recently working there. <laughs> I have in the future. Um, so, but you, you've already received one question, haven't you, Helen? I have, yeah. I had a, a question from Gordon in Kent Ooh. after following last week's um, podcast. Um, it wasn't really about last week's podcast, but it was about um, coloured deficiency correction. Um, he said he'd seen that there are glasses on the market that supposedly can correct colour vision. And he was asking, do, do they actually work? Have you got any thoughts? Have you come across these? I'm just wondering whether we are going to do a colour deficiency podcast because I think that will be quite interesting to a lot, lot of people. And if we can start to explain why the deficiencies happen, I think we'll be able to match how these filters are working for um, colour deficient observers. Well, I, I agree with you and um, I hope Gordon won't mind um, if we leave that until we do the um, colour deficiency podcast which is going to be pretty soon um, and I'm afraid we've, we've got no time anyway um, we've, I think we've overrun our time um, I hope you've enjoyed listening and um, please um, if you like it please um, follow us uh, rate us whatever it is people do with um, podcasts um, subscribe and see you next time <laughs> bye bye bye